Genesis chapter 3, and we'll start again reading verse with verse 1, and we'll go this time through 21. Hear these words from Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, <clears throat> Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. But the sweat of your face, or sorry, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We pray now that You would reveal Yourself and our heart in these moments we have as we look into Your Word, Lord, for clarification for help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Who is God? Why are we here? These are certain questions that every person asks in life. What is God like? 
Um, seems like today in our modern world, the question is, is there a God? But that has never been the question across the span of time. It's really just a, a project that has weakened now to the point where most people still believe in a God, even though um, many atheists feel like because of science, uh, God has been done away with. But for the most of the world, all even outside of America in the world, no one questions God, except for who is it? What kind of God is it? Typically, you, you structure this into two main things, and that is, is there one God or are there many gods? And of course, the Christian faith, because of Jesus Christ, because of His Word, because of Moses in particular, and the revelation at Mount Sinai, we know that there is only one God and there is no image in all of creation for that one God. Not one. There's nothing you can say, oh, God is this, or He is a tree, or He is that. No, there's no image. Here's the good news about God is that He has revealed Himself. We can know who He is. He hasn't remained silent. He's not this world, and nothing in this world corresponds to Him one for one at all. And yet, we can know Him because of His revelation. In other words, He has revealed Himself. He's chosen to make Himself known, to make Himself available. And Genesis 3 is one of those passages in His revelation that is unmistakable. Once you read it, it's powerful. And everything else connects back to chapter 3. In other words, the rest of the Bible is, has to be there because of chapter 3. <laughs> uh, if everything would have gone as it was going in 1 and 2, there would be no need for anything else. But instead, the story goes south, so to speak, very quickly. We get off trail fast, early on. We only get two chapters of pure goodness. And then all of a sudden, uh, we fault. We go astray. We chase after something that God had forbidden. And that's why we return here again this week, as we did last uh, Sunday, to look at chapter 3 of Genesis. Now, the first thing we notice here is that the serpent is a creature. Okay, it's, the serpent isn't some other force in, in uh, God's universe. So, one and two, all good. You remember what he said even, right? When he's creating, he says, boy, this is good. At the end of each day, this is good, this is good, this is good. Six times on the sixth day, he actually says, this is very good. When he creates mankind, male and female, he created them in His very image, and after His likeness. So you say, what is God most like in His creation? He's most like humans. If there's one image, it's in us. For we were created in the image of God. It's kind of like what Clark Pinnock says, who's a theologian. He says, God is everywhere present in His world, but He's nowhere more present than in human beings because that is where He wants to dwell. It's where He chooses to make His home. Not in a temple made with hands, not 
with brick and mortar or stone, but instead a temple that was made by His hands. Your body. That's what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians. And each of us will be judged for what we do in this temple that He has given, that He has erected and built, that He's given to us as a gift. Everyone will be judged on what we do in our body. You see, there's only one God. There's not two. There's not a good and an evil God. There's no uh, forces of evil and good that are combating. There's only good with God. And there's only one God. Now, is evil a reality? Absolutely it is. But all evil, all bad is spoiled goodness. It borrows from what is good. You think of one major sin in our culture today, which has to be sexually oriented. Um, surely that would be one of the greater sins of our American culture. You can't look at a magazine. You can't drive by without seeing billboards that are sexually charged, aimed at getting you to buy a product based on some type of sexual, uh, really sexual deviation. Not anything good. I mean, you probably talk about sex in a good way, of course, on a billboard, but it seems to never happen. I think I did see one on the way to Athens, uh, maybe a diamond jeweler place that said something about monogamy in a positive light. Most things are not aimed at monogamy, but instead uh, fornication or adultery or these types of sins, and it's rampant. Look at our divorce rates. It's rampant, even in the church. We're at over 50% now. Sadly, in the African-American community, they've reached a level of epidemic proportions, uh, fatherlessness. It's unbelievable. I think the last statistic I saw was approaching 70% of black boys do not have a father figure in their life. That's... It's unheard of. It's unbelievable. It's terrible and it's sad. We are the ones who mar the image. God has given us certain things. This body. The image of marriage. Sex. All of them are good things. And yet we're the ones who go astray. We're the ones who mess things up. Just like our first parents. We, like Adam and Eve, which is why this chapter 3 is so striking to us, is because we too are reaching for something good and yet we do it the wrong way. I mean, look at Eve. She's trying to do something good. Oh, the tree will make me wise like God. Hey, that's not a bad thing. We all want to be wise like God, right? How is that a bad thing? It's good for food. Remember what? Remember the list she gives? It's good for food. It's actually nice to look at. And it also will make one wise. So she took it and ate it. Sin is always reaching for something good. Pleasure. Family. Friendship, companionship, 
the wrong way. It's what Lewis said again about the keyboard or the piano. None of the keys are bad. Nothing in this life is in itself wholly evil. We're the ones who corrupt it. We're the ones who, just like the serpent, slither our way in and spoil it. Evil is spoiled goodness. It's exactly what it is. It's the absence of what God didn't want for us. Just like a hole. A hole is a reality. If I have a hole in my shirt, you can see that. But what is a hole? It's lacking the material. When we sin, it's like chasing after the wind. It's like a hole. It's a black hole. And we'll never be able to grab onto any material substance. And yet... It's so enticing, isn't it? You know, I'm not speaking to people who haven't sinned. We all have. We're all in the same boat. We can't look down the aisle or look the other way. It's me who's standing in the need of prayer, as the old song used to say. It's me who has thought, ooh, that's pretty shiny. I like that. It's interesting, in the Hebrew... The term for serpent here actually has the same idea of the bronze serpent that Moses raised up, remember, in the wilderness when everyone was being snake-bitten, which would have been the worst of the plagues for me. But um, they were all being snake-bitten by poisonous snakes, and he lifted up this bronze serpent, and they were able to look at that serpent, and actually they were healed, which is also where you know our paramedics symbol comes from, where the serpent's around the pole. That's exactly where that comes from as well. But nonetheless... I digress. The point is, in the Hebrew, the, ser- the term for serpent and the bronze serpent are both shiny. And it sounds like that's exactly kind of the way that the serpent here cons Eve into taking of the fruit. Oh, what, what, look at this. It doesn't look bad, does it? Isn't that the first thing we convince ourselves? This doesn't look so bad. I mean, look at what so-and-so did. What I'm doing doesn't look so bad. And sin never starts off looking bad. It only looks bad once we get finished with it and we think to ourselves, my God, what have I done? I mean, people have a hurt now. It's almost like we're in this zone and it gets narrower and narrower. It's a difficult word for me to say. As we get enclosed in the darkness. And then when light is shown, we think to ourselves, oh my, what have I done? It's kind of like uh, Urkel on his show. Did I do that? You know, after this big debacle, he, he's trying to do something good, right? And it always ends up terrible and everything falls apart around him and he breaks everything and everybody's mad at him. He said, did I do that? You know, in his, in his un, you know, memorable voice. Or maybe it's like what C.S. Lewis says. He says, you know, the smell of bacon is very different when you're cooking it and you're hungry and after the fact when you're very full and you've had your fill of it. The smell of bacon is very different. First, you're, man, this stuff's amazing. I cannot wait. And then once you overeat on the bacon and you have that grease there, now you've got to clean up your mess and you're very full. And it smells so good. It just has an odor. It's the same way with sin. It smells so good to us before we do it. I mean, it seems like the only thing we can do Feels like we can't even help ourselves but reach out and take it. But then after we've eaten, 
just like in our story this morning, our eyes are opened and we say to ourselves, what have we done? (laughs) Of course, the consequences come in in verses 14 through 19 here in Genesis 3. But they had no idea what they had done when she did this, when she took, when she ate, when she gave, and he ate. And we too have no idea the pain and suffering that we bring to our own lives and the lives of others when we sin. Notice that their punishments didn't just deal with them. It wasn't, Adam, because of what you've done, you're the only one that's going to have to work hard now for your food. No. No. Thanks a lot, Adam. Really appreciate it. Now I've got to work hard in order to provide food for my family. It wasn't just Eve, because you have messed up. You're the only one that's going to have pain when you birth children. No. Sorry, ladies. You can blame that one on Eve. Although this chapter cautions us, doesn't it, against blaming others? Because the reality is, if Adam wouldn't have eaten the fruit, I would have. If Eve wouldn't have taken the fruit, you would have. And in our own way, we all do. We all partake. We all see it as what we want and grab it and take it and eat it. Each of us, as Isaiah will say, has gone astray. And of course, Paul echoes that in Romans. Reaching for something good, we grab onto something dreadful, something contagious. It's sad, but it's a reality that sin doesn't just deal with us. You wish it did. You wish that you could absorb it all and just say, okay, I know that I mess up here and I know I've messed up there, but I just want to contain all that in myself. It, it, surely it doesn't hurt Bobby. Or surely it doesn't hurt my co-worker. But the problem is, and what Genesis 3 teaches us, is that we're all connected. It's almost like when you throw a pebble into a large lake, that pebble hits in one specific place. But the ripple effect of that goes out all the way to the shore. What we do ripples and affects everyone else around us. Just as it does here. Which is why God is so serious about sin. And it's the reason why the psalmist, to speak of the psalmist, is so serious about evildoers. You know how he wants them killed? I mean, you can, if you've ever read the psalms, you can hear him. Lord, get rid of these people. Don't don't I hate them who hate you? Lord, don't you know that people don't like you? Just get rid of them. And then, of course, that verse, one of the Psalms, uh, it's in the hundreds, I can't remember it right now. He says, I wish that the Babylonians' babies' heads were dashed against the rocks. He's serious about people who hate God. He wants them gone. Now, 
what we learn from 139 is that he says, hang on, Lord, before you start destroying the wicked, make sure that I'm not wicked too. But here's the thing we can learn from the psalmist and his anger towards sin is that we have become too comfortable with sin. We've let it stay too long. We've not treated it as a disease to be rid of. I mean, if you get a diagnosis of cancer, you don't laugh. That's not the response people give when they get the news of cancer. It's not, well, you know what, I, I know I've got melanoma, but the reality is I'm not, you know, I still have things to do. I, I'm going to wait another two years before I start treatment. No. You've got to get it taken care of now. We have not been serious enough about getting rid of sin in our lives. We've accommodated it. And we've all done it. Again, I'm not preaching at you as much as you're overhearing what God is showing me from Genesis 3. We accommodate sin in our lives. Little things, and yet it's one cell that turns into multiple cells that are cancerous. It begins with one. And so does our sin. Always begins with one idea. One shiny thing that we want. I always tell the story of Frank, my middle son, Baylor. That's his nickname. One morning, uh, we put on a show for him and just wanted to catch a couple more minutes of sleep, so I returned to bed. And only to hear Jackson come in and say, Bertie tried to cut me with a knife. So I'm thinking, oh, that's, yeah, that's, I'm glad y'all are playing and stuff. Y'all have a little kitchenette set. Hang on, you don't have a kitchenette set. your boys. I better get up and go see what's going on. So I went in there, and Frank is dual-wielding two paring knives. Is that how you say it? Paring? Paring knives. Uh, stainless steel in his hand with his pacifier. Watching Mickey Mouse. <laughs> like nothing's going on. I come into the situation saying, Whoa, <laughs> this could be dangerous. And I say, baby hand nose to daddy, okay? And I reach out for him, and... For a second, he pulls back. And I slowly reach out because he trusts me and I'm able to grab him and take him away from him without him hurting himself or me or Jackson. Uh, now, we don't know still to this day how he ended up getting into the dishwasher and unlocking the thing that holds the knives uh, at one year old. And he never has returned there since. But uh, whatever happened that morning, we'll never know. But the reality is, and it illustrates to me perfectly... Sometimes I find something in life and I say, this is mine. Look what I found. So nice and shiny. Isn't this cool? Isn't this great, what I've got here? And then when God asks for it, because it can kill me, I want to pull back. I want to draw back. Clench the fists. And a lot of times we don't know why we can't do some things. It has to be like what you get to say as a parent, because I said so. And God has to say sometimes to us, give me that. Stop doing that. 
We say, why? Because I said so. You have to trust me. You won't understand in this life. You know, your pet doesn't understand why you have to take them to the vet and they freak out and they get their shot. And Your child doesn't understand when he has to go through a surgery, uh, as Bo did. And he's crying and reaching out and saying, Mama and Daddy, and it breaks your heart. For other people, strangers, people who you've just met five minutes ago to take your son and put him to sleep and cut on it. But you know what is best. And so does our Heavenly Father. He knows what's best for us. But we get this little idea in our head because the same serpent that tricked them tricks us. And he says, God is not for you. He's not doing this for your best. He's trying to withhold this pleasure from you. This shiny new thing that you think you found. The response as Christians, the response as children who trust their Father is to give it to Him. This ought to be our posture, not this. This. Hands lifted out to God not grasping anything in this life. He's our good shepherd, isn't he? Psalm 23. He's the good shepherd I shall not want. I don't need anything. Why do we not need anything? Because there's a few things that here in Genesis 3 tell us that he's our father because he's the originator. (laughs) That's a big word, but he originates things. Everything originates with Him. It is what we mean when we say Father Abraham. He's the Father of faith for all people. Why? Because He's the first to trust God that we know of in faith. In chapter, Everything in Genesis runs uh, great. One and two, three, everything goes down and there's a spiral all the way to chapter 11. No one is doing what's right except for Noah. And then... In chapter 12, we get Abraham who decides to trust in God and put his faith in Him. You see, we have a Heavenly Father who loves us and cares for us. And we often think to ourselves, well, look at all the good I've done. Lord, surely you ought to bless me because of all the good stuff I've done. Instead of doing it out of a heart of love, we do it out of selfishness to make ourselves look good, to line ourselves up. And it's very easy in growing up in church and living in the Bible Belt to do what's right because it's right. But isn't it wonderful when your children do something out of love and not because you told them to? I mean, just think, Jessica, what if Jackson just cleaned up the living room just because he loved you and said, Mama, I love you, I cleaned up the living room. That day will come, we're still teaching him to do that. But as small children, we have to first learn to simply obey God. But isn't that a tough lesson? I mean, sitting here in a nice air-conditioned place with nice Christian people around us, it's easy to say, oh yeah, 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 I can trust God. I can, I can obey God. 
I cannot do this or not do that. But when we get in the situation, the heat of the moment, when our passions are running, when emotions are flaring, when we want what we want, what about them? Are we going to throw ourselves on the floor as my children do sometimes? Still try to get what we want? Obedience is an easy thing, and yet it's the hardest thing. (laughs) It really is. Just to stay home. Just to say no. Just to do what we're supposed to do. It's very difficult. You know, it's easy being bad. That's easy. Anybody can be bad. I know that it's it's really funny to me looking back at high school, and I guess it is funny for many people, but being bad in high school gets you to be cool. You know, people think, oh, wow, he's a rep. But what you learn later in life is anybody can be bad. Anybody can go get drunk. Anybody can cheat. Anybody can lie. Those things are easy. Anybody can live a wicked life. That's not hard. The difficult thing in life is living righteously. Notice what happens in the text here. God doesn't leave them alone. The good news is that He comes to them. Remember, He is a Father after all. And and notice this too, that He doesn't first come to Eve, who in the story is the one who initiates the conversation about God with the serpent. By the way, it's the first conversation about God and not to God, which is really what we call theology, is talking about God. And maybe we too have fell into the trap of talking about God in our lives without ever talking to Him. In other words, when people talk, are you a Christian? Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And God is faithful. You know, He's our Father. He's this. He... What about ever talking to Him? Do we ever get around to that? Or do we just think we know Him? That's the danger for any person is to say oh yeah I know who God is I know about God but not really knowing him really not having personal knowledge that he's your savior that he died for you that he came to you and notice that he actually comes to Adam and says where are you not to Eve because the man is in charge of his family. Which means you're going to be judged based on that. Men, fathers. That's, that's talking to me. Notice he doesn't come to Eve first. He talks to her in a minute. Adam, and Adam in the story, he apparently is there and never says a word. And simply takes from his wife without question. Both of them being disobedient. And both of them, of course, being punished. The role of a father can't be defined here this morning totally. But one thing is, he's the originator. Things originate with him. Family begins... Because husband and wife come together and produce another. And you are responsible as a father for those people. 
Don't take that lightly. Ultimately, God is the one who's given us all things. So this morning, do you need a new set of clothes like they did? Have you found that you've been stripped by sin like they had been? Because we've all had it happen. We've all played around with something that we shouldn't have. We've all made a mess of a situation, a mess of our lives, and looked around and said, did I do that? And we have to come to a place where we say, yeah, I did do that. Confession is manning up and saying, I did that. And I can't fix it. Because that's the next thing a man wants to do is fix it. Cover it up. Which is exactly what Adam apparently does. Alright, well let's just get some leaves here. No, that wasn't good enough. What did God have to do for them? He put animal clothes on them. It was the first sacrifice. An animal had to be sacrificed in order for them to be fully clothed. Jesus was sacrificed so that we could be fully clothed in His righteousness. What you've put on, whatever it is that you've tried to cover up with, is not enough. You must have His righteousness. You must look to His Son, the Father's Son. Because He is the one who has been provided for us. Have you been playing around with sin? It's time to man up and say, it's my fault. I'm the one at fault. Our wives are a blessing to us because we learn more about ourselves than we ever would have known by ourselves. That's one of the beauties of marriage. Being one. Jessica sees things that you all do not. And she's very gracious. And so is God. He's filled with grace. He's willing to forgive us. He's willing to help us. He's willing to take the knives away from us and love us and give us a big hug if we'll only do it instead of drawing up. We wonder where God is. He's there with outstretched hands if we'll only meet Him that way. Are you willing to let go of certain things in your life? Because today can be a day where you experience freedom from sin, freedom from yourself, from bondage. Peace with God. Peace with your wife. Being the kind of person who can set an example for your children. That's what God's called us to. That's what He's called you to. The interesting thing is, even if you're not a father, you're still influencing these kids. You don't believe that. Bobby's not their father, and yet he's a superstar. We all influence one another. That's the point. So what are you producing? 
this morning, He can make you into, just like Jesus was talking about in Mark 4, He can make you into a big, fruitful tree. Will you let Him do that today? Rachel, if you would come up, let's, re- let's take this time to respond to this word.